0: okay so yeah it's a little it's a little bit different because we're we're back a bit but we're good okay in frame i'm you, there you learn a new term today yeah. all right so yeah just move the mic up to your face and you can move the mic anywhere you want to okay. you're, you're free to yeah it, you can basically just not break it okay so it's, it's fine <laughs> all right that's fine okay greetings hello how goes it this is the Cube LA podcast. I know. I haven't done an episode in a few weeks. My apologies. As a heads up, uh, the last interview of the year will be with Dr. Donald Brown. We will discuss the connection between mental health and our current justice system. I'm very excited for that episode. Uh, And speaking of excited, I'm excited for today. I have with me Sarah Godoy. Am I saying your last name properly? Yeah. Starting off the interview strong. (laughs) Started off strong. Okay. I don't have any other updates, so we can just dive right into the show. Are you ready to begin?
1: Let's do it. Okay. Okay
0: is it okay if I call you Sarah?
1: Of course.
0: Just making sure. Okay so you are a you're a very busy lady.
1: Very busy. Very tired all the time.
0: (laughs) You received your bachelor's in poli sci and women's studies in 2010 from UC Riverside. You received your master of social uh, welfare from UCLA in 2015 and you are currently uh, working on your PhD in social work all the way on the other side of the country in North Carolina. Yep. Correct? Yes. Okay, you have written uh, on you are currently on numerous editorial boards regarding child abuse, violence against women and human trafficking. And you've written numerous articles, given numerous presentations. So basically, if I want to learn about the what I'll call horrific topic of sex trafficking, you are the person I should go to. Right? Yes. Okay. All right. We're in the right place. Okay.
1: (laughs) That's my area.
0: (laughs) So I'll tell you what, we're going to start off at a very basic level. Okay. My very first question for you is how do you define uh, sex trafficking?
1: Sure. So in the United States, we have um, the cornerstone of human trafficking legislation, which includes both labor and sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. So my area of expertise is really sex trafficking. Um, But it is important to note that there are various forms of human trafficking, including labor and organ trafficking. Um, So here in the U.S., we define sex trafficking of adults differently than we do of children. So for adults, we define it as using force, fraud, or coercion to induce a person over the age of 18 or 18 or older into commercial sexual activity for anything of value. Mm -hmm. So that could be food, shelter, money, commercial sex acts could be pornography, transactional sex, and even survival sex. Um, For children, we have an important caveat. So we in the United States legally define sex trafficking as inducing any minor, age 17 and below, into any type of commercial sexual activity in exchange for anything of value. So importantly, minors do not have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. They don't have to prove that they've crossed state lines. They don't have to prove that they have a trafficker. Basically, if a minor is engaging in any type of sexual activity and they are receiving something, whether it be you know food, basic needs, um, a higher status in, you know, or a grade or something like that, they are deemed trafficked.
0: See, this this is why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this before the show started, uh, how broad of a topic sex trafficking or human trafficking is. Um, I was, um, I actually sat in on a lecture that I only got about an hour, an hour's worth of. And the stuff that you just listed off there, I feel like there, there needs to be at least a week's worth of material. <laughs>
1: Definitely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we try to distill it down the best we can and give folks kind of you know, pockets of information that can be absorbed, but the reality is that you listen to one podcast or you attend one training, and there's just no way that you could ever learn all of the nuances in that time frame. And so, I think it's important to have these foundational conversations. But really, the work begins once you walk away from there. So, you know, if you learn something and you're interested, or you see something. Um, I would really press upon people that it takes the steps of learning more, to engaging in dialogue, to understand what the policies and protocols in their own workspace and their field would be to responding to something like sex trafficking.
0: Yeah, my uh, my interest came from that, That bring the mic close to you like this. My interest came from that one hour that I had, but I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I mean, right. if it was not for me being in that field, mm-hmm. my the knowledge that I would have had about it would have been from the movie Taken or right. something like that. Right. But how did you get involved in the field or interested in the field? How did you How did you come to that?
1: Yeah. Um, two points. One, before I, I start to talk about um, how I became involved, I think exactly what you're saying is so true is that mm-hmm. you know you were able to learn a, a snippet of what sex trafficking is through your training Yeah. but we know that there is no standardized training across the united states across healthcare providers across service providers in general or a standard of care and so when you're working with this population um, oftentimes folks who are the ones the points of contact that could very much intervene and identify what's happening um, they're not having this training and so That is why so often folks who are trafficked really slip under the radar and go under or unidentified. Um, So I think it's really important that we develop standards of training and standards of care Mm. so that folks, especially healthcare system folks, uh, child welfare, juvenile justice, judicial system, all of these systems where these folks are intersecting need to have more conversations, more appropriate trainings, and again, that standard of care.
0: So even though it's a very broad and actually large problem and topic, people know very little about it.
1: Definitely, Mm -hmm. and and you might know something, you might suspect something, but oftentimes service providers say that they feel ill-equipped to make a referral or to even call it sex trafficking, even if those indicators and signs are very clearly there. Mm -hmm. but yeah, so I entered the field in 2014. I was very privileged to be selected to do an international internship in uh, grad school at UCLA, and I went to India. And we had a connection with the University of Delhi. Um, you know, my heart's still in India very much. I get really excited when I talk about it. Yeah. So we had the opportunity to do site visits of six different. Um, social enterprises and nonprofits working with vulnerable populations. And the very last one, the one that I selected, was a nonprofit. They're still in existence, Kat Katha. Um, they do really important work and they're really the only nonprofit in the red light district in Delhi, India. Mm. And so they provide services both to the women who are in brothels, most of whom were sex trafficked into those positions. Um, and their children who live alongside them in the brothels, and mm. so, um, you know, I was in India over a summer, and every day we would trek to the brothels, and we would go to this nonprofit, and and I remember thinking, um, you know, I in undergrad I founded a feminist club, very active, mm. very much wanted to work against violence against women. Um, and did a lot of consciousness-raising events and, and really felt like I had a lot of agency. And then I would step off the metro and I would walk in this place where I couldn't look men in the eyes. And very clearly, our instructions were, do not look a man in the eyes while you're in GB Road, while you're on in the red light district, because that's an indicator that they could do what they want to you. And there was this fear because these sex buyers were really? there to buy sex. And so being the only nonprofit in the area, we had to also take precautions, right? And so we had to abide by their social policy and their codes. And so we would go to the brothels and we would do these visits. And I remember staring at the floor and staring at the ceiling because I couldn't look men in the eyes. Right. And there was one time in particular where, um, I mean, there's a couple of times that really call out to me, but there was this one time where this trafficker, this, this pimp, quote-unquote, um, he was talking to a, one of the little girls who he basically like, did English classes and some you know, arts and crafts and, and different types of um, activities with the youth. And so this one little girl, she was about nine years old, and he's asking her a question. And I couldn't understand because they were speaking Hindi. Mm-hmm. And he, he touches her face, And the way that he looked at her looked like he wanted to eat her, was my thought. I said to one of the the fellow interns, I said, what are they talking about right now? Can you hear? Yeah. He spoke English and he said, he's asking where another little girl is, a little girl who's only five years old. And I said, why does he want to know where the five, like where she is? She's five years old. What would he have to do with her? And so, and you know, they are a community, and they're a network in some way, right? Because those, quote unquote, pimps go in and out of the brothels, and those kids live there. So as their moms are engaging in commercial sex, those children are going in and out of the brothels because those are their homes. And so I just remember thinking, you know, the way I, I, I felt powerlessness in those scenarios. And But then at the same time, I remembered thinking like, but I get to walk away and I get to feel safe. Mm -hmm. I get to go to an air-conditioned Airbnb and I'm only taking a metro there. My life isn't living in these places. and, And, you know, if I don't dedicate the rest of my life to serving folks, kids like this, women who are dealing with these things, to raising awareness that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, you know. And so... That happened. Um, it was a really emotional summer. And then I come back and I work with kids in Los Angeles. Mm. And these kids bought and sold throughout the U.S., born in the United States, um, part of the juvenile justice system, part of the child welfare system, accessing services through a local L.A.-based nonprofit called Saving Innocence. And, you know, again, it's like these really horrific, heartbreaking stories. Um, and all throughout all of it i you know if i zoom out and take a look at at those experiences i really was most um struck by the resilience and also the amount of like hope that existed Mm -hmm. even in this darkness and even in a lot of really evil you know scenarios that you hear about but these kids like encouraging each other, like, no, be happy. It's okay. It's going to be okay. You already lived through the worst. You're going to be okay, Mm. you know. And so I think that when you have the opportunity to sit face-to-face and to, you know, be in this position with children, minors, who have already lived through more than you can ever even dream of, Mm. um, it's really... It just like sparks something that Yeah. I don't know. I can see it. Wants and need to do more.
0: I can see it. People you know, you might be listening at home so you can't see it, but your face kinda of lit up when you started talking <laughs> about India, when you started talking about helping yeah. people. No, that's uh no, I can understand. You were sort of in the environment that that where you would be touched in that manner. Yeah. 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 So you described somewhere other than the United States. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that people in the United States have this issue with imagining other places outside of the United right. States. We actually have an issue imagining places in the United States mm-hmm. that are outside of our own, outside of our own atmosphere, personal right. atmosphere. Right. Do you feel that um, the people of the United States that are not involved in these situations, do you, do you feel as though we're all taking it seriously or that we, that we how do you feel that we're approaching People that are in situations like you just described—I
1: don't think taking it seriously. I think people know that it's a serious and grave issue, and right. when they hear about it or they see about it, I think people feel really angry mm. and upset. And you know, people—I'll go to—I'll—I'll I'll facilitate a training, and then people come up after, and they're like angry, and they're like, "Well, if I ever met a trafficker, I would do this," or "They all deserve to die," or you know, all of these really impassions like responses and so i don't think it's a matter of taking it seriously i think it's a matter of knowing and understanding that it's just it's more prevalent than what we think it is and it's almost like you know we i mean we're all so busy and we all have our blinders on Mm. of what it is that we care about and we're passionate about and sometimes it feels like adding something so heavy like sex trafficking like You know,
0: it's too much. It's too much.
1: Right. Like I, I have enough to worry about. I don't need to worry about the children who are, you know, being bought and sold for sex. But
0: in another country, in another country.
1: But, you know, it is very much here. And oftentimes we see it. We see indicators and we have this response of, you know, my stomach turns. Something's uneasy, but I don't know what it is, you know. And so I think that having just a little bit of information and taking action not you know being the person that intervenes but trying to get folks involved who are in a position to help i think is really important and critical because it is here it is in every community in the united states it doesn't matter if it's a rural community an urban community it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter you know there are folks who are more vulnerable to exploitation but we know that really it crosses socioeconomic lines and it crosses races and cultures. Exploitation, unfortunately, is embedded in every you know, place in this country, in this world. There's no immune community from it. Yeah. And so it might look, and it does look different, you know, depending on where you are, it's going to look very different. Um, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that we probably don't know what we're looking at.
0: And I imagine that that happens quite a bit in mm-hmm. doctors' offices and. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, I think we don't understand the importance when, if we think about service providers, the importance of trauma-informed care, and you know, oftentimes, and you know, if we think about the healthcare professionals or doctors in particular, it's typically historically very paternalistic. Right, And so it's like, well, the doctor says and you follow the orders and they're just going to do what they have to do and you have to comply. But we know that people with trauma, with histories of trauma, with histories of sexual abuse, you know, they're also going to react in a way. And oftentimes when a a young person who has been exploited then reacts to someone who's not employing trauma-informed approaches, they're then deemed as, well, they're just difficult to work with or they don't want help. Um, but really, you know, from the standpoint of the person who is the service provider, it's it really the onus should fall on them, right? The onus should fall on the person who is being paid to provide the service and is being trained to provide the service and not someone who has had for probably their whole life have had this continuum of abuse and now they have to sit and just kind of comply. Um, but in terms of you know also just seeing these indicators of like like when i saw that that man touch this child's face for me it was like whoa there's no boundaries hmm. here like i mean i'm standing in a brothel but it didn't have to be in a brothel it could have very it could have been anywhere right like we often see these broken boundaries and folks just kind of look away right hmm. but one of the biggest antecedents to sex trafficking or one of the most common and well-documented is childhood sexual abuse. Mm. And so seeing some of these indicators early on are really important. Mm.
0: Yeah. um, Again, I I keep going back to this, the training, you know, not having enough training to recognize it, but also being able to approach the patient Mm -hmm. in a proper way. Right. That's also a barrier to patients actually asking for assistance. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that?
1: We shouldn't expect for people to just ask for help Mm -hmm. because oftentimes folks who are exploited are trained to not ask for help they're trained that everyone around them just wants the worst for them, especially if they have a trafficker. You know, the trafficker will instill this fear, this omnipotent presence of, you know, I am everything. I'm taking care of you. And they just want to hurt you. They're gonna take you away. They're gonna put you in a system that doesn't care about you. You know, all of these things where folks are really, you know, scared to ask for help, scared for their lives. It's a self preservation tactic also, right? Like some of the things that um, these folks are encountering, you know, it could be the best psychiatrist and they still wouldn't feel like they're able to disclose. And so I think also recognizing like it's the training, but also recognizing like some folks aren't at the place where they really feel like they are safe or they just have so much else happening at the same time. That, you know, traffickers are very real. Like they could put a green light on, on you and you could be dead the next day. And so could you clarify
0: what green light? Green light. So means? just
1: like basically saying that anyone and, and anyone and everyone could do whatever they want to that person. Okay. Um, you know, like lighting people on fire, that happens, shooting people, that happens, right? Killing people. And so there's all of that to say violence is also a very real part of it. Mm. But I do think, you know, still no matter what, we do need better training. We need consistent training. We need, you know, standards of care. We need policies and protocols because if you have training and you don't, and your organization doesn't have any kind of policy or protocol to follow up with the training, well, then you, as a service provider, will likely still feel ill-equipped to make a make a referral to, um, not sure who to report to and things like that.
0: Yeah. No. I um at. The last place that I trained University of Maryland, we did a lot of trauma informed therapy trauma focused therapy, and one of the first things that they teach you is that a trauma victim is not going to react to you the same way mm-hmm. another person will right their their brains are sort of tuned to pay very close attention to changes in another in another person's right. affect, so yeah. I might smile at something right or my face might you know be straight like it is now, mm-hmm. but that trauma victim might interpret that okay. as me being angry right, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I think also um One thing I've learned in working with youth is they will only tell you what they think that you can handle. And so they might have, you know, a really horrific story, but only give you bits and pieces because of your response to them. And so that's also really important, you know, as a researcher when doing interviews and focus groups, making sure that we have, you know, an environment where folks feel comfortable, where we're not shutting someone down because, our responses are like wow that's the worst thing ever when for them they're like well I haven't even gotten to the worst part of the story yet that was only the introduction and Mm. now I feel like I can't tell you how bad it actually was
0: you have to feel you have to feel comfortable with that person in order to open up to them oh
1: for sure yeah which is I think really tricky as a researcher I mean how do you build rapport so quickly that folks are able to um really open up in an hour interview and give you information right and so I think um I mean there's a lot I could say about that, but it it is really tricky
0: yeah, no it's it's tough, and I feel comfortable talking to trauma victims. I worked in Baltimore, and i I think that is one of those cities that's pretty high up on the list of places where people get trafficked. Um, so i I am very concerned, which is one reason why I wanted to talk to you about this with how many people that don't have any experience at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like again, there's a lot of things that get missed
1: right. I feel like, you know, and not to be like the alarmist, like everyone should be freaking out and everyone should be worried, but like every community should be aware that it is a part of your community. It is, whether the youth are coming or the young adults are coming from your community or they're going through your community or they're being sold in your community. So for example, you know, Los Angeles County might have been identified as a place having higher instances of sex trafficking, but we also know that, kids and adults from alley county are being trafficked in orange county right because there's more money and affluence there and so they might be coming from compton but they're being driven to orange county because you know a blow job might cost something this amount here and it's going to cost more there and so also you know i feel like when we talk about it as like well this is the hot spot It really dilutes from everyone else that's being impacted and affected by it. You know, and like, do we need more services? Yes. But what happens when you go to somewhere like Barstow and it's happening, it's not deemed a hotspot, quote unquote, but there are no services. Right. Right. Like, like if we, we need to like broaden how we think about it so that really services could be more widely accessible. So, you know, identification, all of these response mechanisms should be a part of all of the communities, every community, and yeah. not just, um, and I think, you know, talking about it in terms of like, well, this is really happening here. Yes, it is, and it and, you know, there's more people here, but it's also happening in a lot of, a, in every other community as oh, well. Yeah, I know? agree
0: with you. And I think we spoke about this earlier, like it, there's, When it happens to you, that's when people start to care more, you know? And then when you hear about it, you obviously have a reaction to it, but again, there's so many other things going on. But again, when it happens to you, that's when you really care about it. And it's important for people to know that it can happen to you. Mm -hmm. It can happen no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, it can happen.
1: Just to- Go
0: ahead, yeah, please.
1: There are some people it will never happen to because mm-hmm. they are not gonna be the person that are being trafficked.
0: I was gonna ask you, they, what goes into happening or not happening? What, what would be some factors that, that contribute to that?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of, so I'll, I'll go kind of group by group. Um, when we think about folks who are sex trafficked, oftentimes we know that it's already vulnerable, commun- it's vulnerable communities who are being impacted. So, and this is really across the world Low-income communities that don't have other financial options. Um, You know, we see this in India and other countries um, where folks will, someone will come and they'll say, "Hey, we have this job opportunity. Your child can work in, you know, a fluent home. They could be the housekeeper. Um, We'll pay them. They can send money back." And then before you know it, they're on a plane going to Texas, Mm. and they have been trafficked for the past 10 years. um, And the family
0: doesn't even know about it.
1: Right. And so, um, but, you know, then that person is cut off from their family. There's no communication. Or if they're allowed to talk, the the person who's being trafficked is often, you know, not disclosing information out of fear. Because traffickers use tactics like, well, if you say anything, I'm going to kill you. And I know where your family lives, so I'm going to kill them as well. Right. And so out of safety and for the preservation of themselves and family will not disclose information. Um, so, you know, that could be a tactic. But there's also a lot of other tactics. And I, I don't think we have time to get into every single one. But we see oftentimes with young girls specifically is that a trafficker will tell them that they love them. They want to be their boyfriend, that they're attracted to them. Um, and they will, you know, have this grooming period where maybe they buy them a cell phone and they're like well I got you this phone but you know this is just for you and don't tell anyone about it because people are going to be weird that I got you a phone or whatever but we can talk every day on this well that phone is now this gateway into knowing exactly where that person is every moment of the day basically right and so building this relationship so but like by the time that the trafficker says, well, now I need you to go and make us some money because we're, we're a fam and I took care of you and now you have to take care of us.
0: They're trapped right. in mentally. Yeah, right, yeah. so they're
1: mentally, but also, you know, they'll feel indebted, like, well, you know, he did take care of me, he does love me, he does want the best for us and maybe I should do this. Mm. You know, and that happens really often also. We know that, you know, and, and not to be like, oh, everyone's snatching people off streets, but kids get snatched off streets too. I sat in an investigation in Los Angeles County and it was a trafficker who trafficked um, in total 12 girls. 10 of them were minors. One of them was 18. One of them was 19. One of them was the 19 year old was pregnant, clearly had signs of Stockholm Syndrome. So like a trauma bonding Mm. was in love with the, the trafficker. Three of them were 10 years old. And when the investigating officer said, well, how do you know that these are children? Because, well, first of all, he's like, you're a pedophile because you snatch them off the street and then you sodomize every single one of them. But how do you know that they are children? Because if you're driving down the street, you only have one chance to pull a kid who's probably not going to be able to physically fight you back. Mm-hmm. But if you get a short adult, maybe they can, like, take you, you know? right. right. And so... It took a long time until he answered, but he finally said it was because of the tan pants. And he was specifically saying that he was looking around the local middle school or elementary school where they had school uniforms. And so oh. he was, you know, scoping out those environments and then taking those kids off the street. And so, you know, that's one scenario. But also I worked with a young girl who said her trafficker, literally, she was walking home from the school and the trafficker said, hey, you look hungry. Are you hungry? And she's like, "Hey, yeah, I'm kind of hungry. You know, it's after school." And he's like, "Oh, if you get in the car, I'll take you to McDonald's." Hmm. Literally bought her a one-dollar cheeseburger and trafficked her. And she was like, "I got trafficked for a cheeseburger." And when I met her, she was like 16 years old and already a survivor, right? And she so- was
0: snatched at what age?
1: Um, I don't know exactly, but...
0: Years before?
1: I'm not sure, okay. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like, I mean, that's another thing. Oftentimes when you do work with these young folks or even when you do research, you're not asking them for their whole life story, right? right? Because that that's probably not within the purview of what you're doing um, with them.
0: Sorry to interrupt, I did ask for a reason, but keep going, you were telling me that she's 16 years old, she just realized... She had been trafficked over a cheeseburger. Sorry, I interrupted. Go on.
1: Yeah. So, you know, those are just some of the ways that it happens. Um, We see predominantly people trafficked across, you know, especially in Los Angeles County, but really across the U.S. are going to be youth of color. So right now I'm working on um, a paper and we're, you know, looking at data and, and already published data and the number one identified Person that served in some in specialty courts that we've identified with empirical data are African American girls, and so we see an overrepresentation of youth of color, not only in systems of systems like the child welfare system and the juvenile justice system, which are often both predecessors to and results of being trafficked, but we see that these young people are then being exploited. And so, um, you know, youth are particularly vulnerable, often naive because of naivety um maybe having unstable homes having a history of homelessness or running away from home because of trauma or abuse happening within the home um we see that you know a lot of a lot of risk factors which really are, make for the perfect storm for a trafficker to then you know come on in and say well i can take care of you um if you you know stay with me then you'll have shelter you'll have warmth you'll have you know someone who cares about you and then the next thing you know they're like being sold online for sex or in the streets yeah um i don't know if that answered your question it answered
0: my question that you you actually gave me about three or four other ones but something stood out to me you described the 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 man that was targeting kids Mm -hmm. because of the passes they had what's scary about that for me, at least, is that I think the general public has this idea of people who would do something like this is this maniac that mm-hmm. just walks around. looks crazy. Mm-hmm. Looks like looks like someone you could like point out yeah. out of a group, but that's not the case. Right? These right. people are. Sociopath. You can't identify them just by looking at them. Right. A lot of times they seem pretty normal, and they are actually pretty intelligent when it comes right. to making a connection with someone Absolutely. that they're trying to target.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's no one profile of a trafficker because there's different types of traffickers. But really, you know, one thing that is very clear is that. Traffickers across the board lack empathy, right? Because they are forcing someone or coercing or manipulating or inducing someone to perform sexual acts for their oftentimes financial benefit. But their actual sociodemographic profiles really run the gamut. So it could be a mother who has a drug addiction. And, you know, we hear about this in the news. A mother takes her two children to a five-year-old and a, a... you know three-year-old to go and have sex with her drug dealer so that she can get drugs um we hear about stories like that of course we hear about you know random men who befriend and you know this is kind of a side note but i remember talking to a friend who does direct service and she said she showed up to a a court hearing and she saw this guy she's like dang that guy is cute Mm. And then when she actually, like the, everything was starting and people were sitting down, she realized that that was the trafficker. And so, you know, it's not this weird, like in a, you know, sociopath who's like in this dark dungeon and people were obviously clearly know that there's something wrong with that person. You know, it, it really could be, their profile could be anyone. I think, unfortunately, and, and we didn't talk about language, but I'll bring it up in a little bit. I really don't like using the term pimp when we talk about a trafficker because it automatically forces people to think that a, all traffickers are black men and we know that that's not true. Hmm. But we know also that federally federal cases oftentimes are going to prosecute black men more often and so again, you know, racism, juvenile justice, criminal justice, all these systems that are inherently and systemically racist, oftentimes we also see that narrative of like all traffickers are quote-unquote pimps and all pimps are black men. And that's also not true, right? Because a, a trafficker could be a female. I mean, mostly they are men, but it could be a, a female, a woman. It could be a transgender folk folks. It could be um, really any type of composition and identity of a person
0: yeah i mean this is where education comes into play i mean if you just watch i don't know tv movies mm-hmm. you'll see that image of a pimp and you'll see a black an african-american right. man i mean maybe 20 years ago he would be dressed 30 years ago he would be dressed in a bright suit or something right. and that's what you that's what right. you connect but it's so much deeper than that is mm-hmm. what you're saying
1: yeah and i think you know if we only see traffickers as black men then we're lazy because that's an inaccurate representation um and you know it's really steeped in racism like we need to look beyond that because a lot of traffickers are whites also they are you know of different races and ethnicities um and also sex buyers i think that i've we don't talk about sex buyers enough but honestly like sex buyers drive this market they, they, the they wouldn't they
0: wouldn't be an industry if there weren't people buying it right right yeah.
1: and so and you know we hear this i i hate to say this but people say all the time oh it's a basic supply and demand type of thing i don't like to distill it down to that because it's people's lives um but the reality is that you know sex buyers are the people who are online looking to buy sex driving around on their lunch breaks looking for people standing in the streets, right? And they're not often asking if the person that they're buying sex from or a blowjob from is consenting, right? Like consent isn't part of the conversation, whatever. There's this idea and there's research that shows that oftentimes people who buy sex, the moment that the money is transferred from their hand to the other person, they now, it's like something switches and they think, I own this person for this next hour and I could do whatever I want. And they might play out pornography scenes. They might do devious things that their their partners at home would typically not do. Um, and oftentimes do it to children, right? And so it's it's so deep and complex. But at the same time, it's it's not because we're not focusing the conversation. Like if we're always only talking about the traffickers and we're only talking about people who are victimized, Then this entire body of people are allowed to continue doing what they're doing and going
0: untouched. I mean, when we talk about exploitation, this is another topic that we discussed even before the podcast started and racism. Could you explain uh, what we were discussing earlier uh, when it pertains to that, please?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, just the broader idea of racism is embedded in sexual exploitation. Okay. Right? Like we can't we if we know that most people who are being exploited are people of color and we seem to also have some data although data is competing that most purchasers of sex are actually white men Mm -hmm. um and we also know that people who purchase sex have this idea of i now own you for this period of time and you have to do what i want you to do um we can't not also recognize that there is probably racist thoughts and acts happening. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that we were talking about is there's this news article of this young woman at the time. She was 23 years old. was a third pornography. Um, it just came out. The third porn that she had ever done. And um, she goes to the place and basically it's, it's like a gangbang and there's like eight white men, all of them in Confederate flag kind of paraphernalia whether it's shirts hats i don't remember um and she's a black woman Mm. and so you know that is very a very visual representation of objectification and taking ownership of a black person's body and representing racism but it's not always that explicit right like and it doesn't have to be that explicit to know and understand that racism is embedded in exploitation
0: but not every form of exploitation is racist. Right. No. Okay.
1: No. I mean, and that's, we have to be critically thinking about what we're seeing. And oftentimes we don't talk about racism and the ways that it is embedded, um, or sexism and how it's embedded, or, you know, all of these things that are also part of the conversation. Like we can't just water it down and say, like, no, that was just a sex act. Well, if the person, if the- everyone there is wearing competitor- Confederate flags and this person is a black person, then yes, we can call out the fact that We can that take it's that racist. extra step. We can take that extra step. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. At this point in the conversation, we're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Cube LA Podcast.